Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast, on which we chat with our writers and a larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. Today's guest is Thomas Chatterton Williams. He and I talk about what it has been like for him to watch the cultural and political paroxysms going on in America from across the ocean and how it has been to participate in those paroxysms online and in his own mind. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. So the other night, so uh, Turner Classic Movies is having their February Black History Month um, celebration, and Saturday was Sidney Poitier's birthday. So they had guests who's coming to dinner, and right afterwards, they had Richard Wright starring in Native Son. Did you know about this movie? Wow. No, I didn't know it was made into a movie, and I definitely didn't know that he, he was stars in it. his own movie. Wow. Yeah, it was wild. Was it any good? It is so bad. <laughs> um, the woman who introduced it was like trying to be as kind as possible, but she said, you know, his acting is um, a little startling. But was it was it like self-produced or something. I think so. I think he also wrote it. Um, wow. Yeah, it was interesting. But anyway, it put me in mind of the expat community in Paris of Black Americans, um, which you write a little bit about in your essay in the first issue because Baldwin was also there. Um, and I'm just wondering if you think about that community a lot living in Paris. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting it. It's always kind of in the back of my mind that um, that the move I made from the United States to Europe and specifically to France and more specifically to Paris is a is a move that um, has been made before by many men and women that um, that I that I love and whose work I revere, and also by many men and women um, who we've never really heard of, who were the GIs from the two world wars, who found that they were treated for the first times in their lives, um, not simply as second class Black Americans, but as simply Americans and, and didn't want to come home after that. And before them, the Louisiana Creoles who were sent uh, to study um, in Paris so that they could live on, on equal terms with, with, with their class, which they were prevented from doing in the American South. So there's a long, long tradition of, of Black Americans kind of interacting with, um, with the best of France, with the, with the French Republican ideal that, um, that I, I'll be honest, that not everybody from the former French colonies um, experiences even to this day. It's a kind of it's a kind of loophole maybe in the racial dynamic where you don't deal with the racial baggage of your own society and you exist outside of the racial baggage of the new society you've come to inhabit. It's a kind of it's, it's a wonderful space and it's a kind of privilege to be a Black American and I'm and I'm and I'm very aware of this um, of this history and lineage and also of the kind of self-consciousness and guilt it can inspire. You know, James Baldwin wrote very movingly about coming to Paris and realizing that um, that the Algerian was occupying at the time his place, what his place would have been back in Harlem. Wow. Was your relationship with that community, did that begin when you first moved to Paris or were you conscious of it 
before you made the move? I mean, my father um, kind of incepted the idea in me from the earliest memories I have of talking with him about these kinds of things. He um, was very much a product of that kind of Black American experience that looked to Paris as um, the kind of the pinnacle of a certain type of um, intellectual culture, of a certain type of elegance, um, certainly as a place where there was a kind of romantic um, ideal of courtship and, you know, of, of beautiful women. And, you know, my, my dad, uh, he doesn't drink, but, you know, the idea of sitting in cafes and all of that was something that really, you know, spoke to him. The, 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 the Sorbonne being one of the oldest and most distinguished um, universities in the West. I mean, these were things that, that, that he kind of implanted in me as, as, as mattering. And he always, you know, told me to study French in school uh, instead of Spanish. And my parents were just kind of amateur Francophiles. And then it was only when I realized, uh, you know, I must have been 12 or something, maybe a little bit younger, that my dad had actually never been to, to France. Uh, he'd, never, <laughs> he'd never set foot in Paris. These were all images and received ideas that he'd gotten from books and things. And he finally went um, in the 90s. Uh, some friends gave him a trip to Paris and he went by himself. And he came back kind of silent. It was almost, it was a really shocking thing for me. You know, he had talked to me kind of incessantly about how incredible Paris was. And he came back from that trip by himself and he never really mentioned it again. And it was almost like, I've only more recently understood that there's a kind of thing called Paris syndrome that mm. is an idea that, you know, it often affects actually um, Japanese women, um, but also some uh, more affluent Chinese tourists. Um, there's an ideal of Paris you can have in your head that is so extreme that when, whenever you actually get to the, the real physical city, it can never live up to the ideal and it kind of can cause a crisis. So I don't know if my dad had a minor um, Paris syndrome experience or what, but he, you know, he, he, he didn't talk about it that much after he got home, but by that point he had already transmitted this idea to me, you know, it was infectious. And um, sure enough, when I got to college, I studied abroad in France and I fell in love. There's a moment in the in the Old Testament when Moses asks to see God's face and, <laughs> and he says no. I mean, he doesn't say no, but he only shows him his back. And there's this sort of um, traditional relief that we never got tied to. If we'd seen his face, that would have been the end of that. You know, there would have been some kind of limitation. And so there's always this romantic ideal because we can't see it. Um, Absolutely. The scariest, uh, the scariest monsters in movies are the ones that you can't really see. Um, <laughs> the imagination is so much more powerful than, you know, than anything, even, even th than a city as beautiful and, and historic as Paris. You know, there's, when you arrive at Charles de Gaulle and the kind of rude taxi driver is smoking and, <laughs> and curses you out and you realize the language is not as pretty when, you know, when, when people are screaming at you, <laughs> it does something. But you said when you were just before, you said that. You, you made an allusion to your own culture's ugliness versus the new culture's ugliness. And does that mean that your own is still America? Is that still your primary context, even though you're not physically there? Yes, here? absolutely. 100%. Um, you know, I 
feel though when I do go back to America, I have 10, 11 years here have changed me. When I go back to America, I see America through the judging eyes of a European. But <laughs> when I live my life in Europe, I'm I'm an American and I'll never be a European in in Paris. So I kind of, you know, I gained two homes, but I also became homeless everywhere. I, I really do feel that. And I think that's an advantage for a writer, actually. I, I think it's really, really helpful to never quite fit in and to kind of observe and and stay a little bit outside. Yeah, that, you also say that about Baldwin in your essay. You call him a peripheralist. Um, that's right, and- yeah. And Richard Wright was there also, so there were a lot. There were a lot of. I mean, he, they weren't the only two. There were many. There, there. Are, this is a thick tradition, um, but definitely people that you disagree with and who see it, who see things differently than you do or did or or are, will. Um, I, I wonder who are the people that you are arguing with in your head, and have those oh. people changed. That's a good, I mean, (laughs) I think it's first, we have to say, you know, the first time that I lived um, abroad was 2002. And then that was my junior, the summer after my junior year at Georgetown. And then after I graduated, I lived in France for one year teaching English. And that was really, really still a different time. Um, You know, I might check my, I didn't have internet in my apartment. I didn't need it. No one really needed it. I didn't check my email, but once or twice a week, and we still wrote emails that were kind of like long letters. You know, no one was texting really. Um, there was no social media yet, so I felt like I was far away, and I, uh, I felt like I was much more in um, France uh, in my mind and my day to day life than when I came back in 2011. When there was Instagram, there was Facebook at the time was really big. Emails were, you know, one of many ways that we hurled communications at each other back and forth all day. I knew what my friends were eating at any given time in Brooklyn. So it felt a lot less like I was um, outside of this kind of American mental terrain. So I'm arguing with people that, you know, I would be reading and arguing with in, in the media and in, in the publishing industry and in academic um, circles if I were back home. But I'm also, you know, I'm also increasingly getting into sticking my toes into the European debate. So um, so I don't know. I, it's a hard question to think who you're arguing with. I'll be honest and I'll say that, you know, when I first moved to Paris, um, I was arguing very much with uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, I thought he was an interesting writer, but I had very different conclusions about what it meant to be black than he did. You know, he was also quite interested in Paris and um, I had different, you know, understandings of what the writers that we both revered from the black tradition were actually saying about coming over here. And then, you know, his book Between the World and Me in 2015 became a kind of central event for anybody who was writing about race, uh, whether you agreed or disagreed. And then, you know, in the years since then, obviously race has, it's not my only subject. It's not even maybe the thing that I would always want to think or talk about, but it's it's, it's a very important subject and it's exploded um, in America and in Europe. You know, 2020 was the year in which we talked about race in every single aspect of our lives. And so there, it seems like 
there are so many people that I'm in conversation with or arguing with right now. It's almost like I could list who I'm not <laughs> arguing with more easily. When you say we, you mean America or do you mean everyone? I kind about of mean everyone. everyone. Yeah. About race, about race affecting every realm of our life and being, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, post George Floyd during this year of pandemic, I mean, this is, um, this is the central subject of our, of our waking lives, uh, whether you like it or not. When you said that sometimes it might not be right. Race might, might not be all that you want to talk about or think about. Um, is it all that you, is it, is it what you, the central focus of your mind most of the day? I mean, the way that you approach most subjects through that When I'm living or when I'm living? Oh, well, if there are different answers to that question, that'd be interesting. Yeah, there are definitely different answers. Um, You know, I could live, if, if, the, if I were not um, reading and writing about race, I could live my life here pretty easily with it receding from, from my day-to-day consciousness for days at a time. You know, um, I'm not reminded of my racial identity um, when I'm cooking an egg here. Um, when I interact with French people, oftentimes if they don't know me or if I haven't told them, there's an element of them not... Uh, knowing how to view me or see me. Um, I don't interact with or have uh, fear of the police here. So I, I, I have a kind of, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm outside of what Stanley Crouch would call the all-American skin game here. Uh-huh. And, and that's been kind of liberating. But then my work brings me into it. Um, and it brings me quite deeply into it. So I'm constantly thinking about race in terms of reading and writing. But, you know, I want to say that, you know, I think it's a really important subject. I don't think it's like second to what I really value where I'm not doing it, because race is just a way of talking about, you know, ethics, about history, about community, about um, um, human consciousness. It, it touches on any aspect of being alive that we might value. But what, what's, problem, what's problematic is racism. And racism is kind of like a double punishment where you have the initial harm that was done to you or your ancestors. And then you have the continued harm of constantly trying to think or argue your way out of this straitjacket that's um, tightening around you the more you struggle and you, you concerning your waking hours with the problems that it imposes. And there's the problems that the racists impose. And increasingly, I find myself consumed with the problems that the anti-racists impose. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish the two from each other. So you're kind of tied up in what Toni Morrison described as an immense waste of time, which is the real robbery that racism uh, imposes on us. You said that, I mean, you make this distinction between what occupies you in your private life and, you know, just walking down the street and, and what occupies you as, as a writer. Um, but your writing certainly has a sense of inner compulsion and what you just said about race being a way of getting at fundamentals indicates that you would be doing this even if you didn't have to be, I mean, and you don't have to be, you, you choose to be, um, is that, is that right? I mean, would you say that? Yeah, no, that's right. I definitely choose to be, but it's, it's a difficult thing. You know, like 
I'm interested in these questions. I don't actually um, want to just write about architecture for wallpaper magazine or something like that, even though I'm interested in architecture. I think that these are fundamentally important questions, but you know, there's always the, the tension of, and maybe you understand this as a, as a woman writer, like, um, am I interested in this because this is also where I'm steered or, or, or because these questions have been forced on me or it's, it's difficult to extricate um, being interested in race from the fact of having been racialized in a racist mm-hmm. society, you know, and, and, and also kind of getting frustrated with, um, for me, really getting frustrated with the anti-racist discourse, which I think also re-racializes and encumbers me. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it, 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 I mean, maybe I'm not even the best, maybe one is not the best judge for oneself of whether one is choosing a subject or not. I mean, I know that I think that, I think it's important. I don't think it's trivial. Um, so, so I guess that's the most, that's the, for me, that's the most pressing question. I think that the work matters. I think that interventions in these debates um, are necessary. And I think that the conclusions we reach or we might persuade others to reach um, can have a real effect on our lives and are not just idle questions. So when you talk about being a writer, I think a lot of writers get, a, get at their craft differently or feel tied up in it differently. And sometimes the entire thing can feel like a waste of time, not because it's ridiculous or pointless, but because we were doing something else and we get caught up in a question that we might not have picked for ourselves, but once we're caught up in it, we have to deal with it. Um, so in that sense, it's, it is essential because it's the stuff that is imposed upon us by the realities we find ourselves in. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But, you know, there's also the fact that, you know, you also, the more you think about something and write about something, the more invested in it you become and the more expertise you acquire. And then the more editors ask you for your expertise on the subject and it becomes a kind of self-reinforcing cycle. Um, And maybe, you know, and maybe it would have been otherwise had you not initially been steered in that direction. I mean, it's it's a question that other writers, you know, whether their identity is female or Jewish or, or Muslim, it's, it's a question I think other writers struggle with, too. It's certainly not just a question of, of, of black and white. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult. Yeah, it's difficult to know. I think I think it's difficult to know. And I think also that whatever, whatever necessity brings you to it, um, it's hard not to know that everybody else doesn't have the same kind of thing. So you know, you talked about influence and wanting to be able to provide people with answers, which is very clearly a thing that you were doing all the time is trying to just furnish people with sort of reasonable ways of understanding things that you think are being talked about in unreasonable ways. Um, yeah. And so when you say, and that's like, that's pretty clear um, publicly. And so when you say as a writer, that's what you mean by that. But a different writer might have, might feel compelled to answer questions that they don't understand the answers to and that's what makes them right you know there's something about your voice that is very certain because you're frequently saying things that appear at least to you to be very obvious hmm that i mean that's interesting i think that that may be um an effect of how social media makes you sound more certain than you i i don't think i'm necessarily um, 
Well, I don't know. I, I think of my essays as trying to trying to find, trying to think through what I think by writing. I, I think that writing is one of the ways that I become certain of mm-hmm. things. Um, but, you know, I have to be uh, self-aware. I, I oftentimes, especially in, in the two books I've written, I write about some things that I am certain about, which, which, which are my personal experiences. And then I try to use the particular to draw um, larger conclusions uh, that may be universal or universally a- applicable. So I, I have a kind of way of um, taking questions that might be abstract or academic to, to, to another type of writer and, and personalizing it in a way that lends it a degree of certainty because I, am, I do have a degree of, um, I mean, I am adamant about certain aspects of my own lived reality and observations. Um, so there's that. But I, but I like to think of myself, and maybe I'm deluding myself here, but I like to think of myself as someone who would end up where the evidence takes him and not as, I don't want to be an ideologue. That's one of the things that I think is um, so terrible about this moment is that everybody's kind of incentivized financially and also in terms of social clout to be a kind of pundit um you know or, or to be to be a pundit in miniature and that ne- isn't necessarily the kind of writing that i most admire your your books definitely read differently and your essays also differently than um some of some of your other kind of public interactions or um statements because that's what books and essays are supposed to do um and because i think you are it is clear that you're doing something different in those kinds of long form works um your most recent book was just published in french how how was that different than having it out in english and how was it received in france it, I mean, that's interesting. It's been really interesting. It came out a week ago, and I mean, I got a, there. There was a lot of uh, press in the U.S., and there's there's been quite a lot of press here in France. But whereas it was kind of considered controversial in America, it's considered more um, self-evident, or if not self-evident, then certainly not. Uh, not outre. It's it's kind of restating things that would be very um, acceptable in the mainstream here, and that are for the first time being more and more contested. Um, mm-hmm. There's a growing debate in France about whether American-style multiculturalism uh, and identity politics and kind of understanding all interactions as power relations through the lens of post-colonialism and racial identity, whether that is actually antithetical to um, the, the French model, the French way of making a multi-ethnic society work. And so my book actually comes in here um, as opposed to being something um, outside of the mainstream. It comes in as a kind of, I guess, um, an intervention in favor of the mainstream traditional way of seeing things. Um, and so the reception has been a lot less, um, how do I say, it? I, I, I've been it's been less bitter here for sure. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll say that, you know, there was, and you know, my book came out in America in 2019. I think it would have been received entirely differently had it come out post George Floyd. I mean, I got, I got that book out in the last window of opportunity to, to even question whether or not we should be um, 
considering all aspects of our day-to-day lives through the lens of race. I mean, and also it's been received um, on both the left and the right so far as um, it's been received on both the left and the right as something that speaks to values that both the left and the right are upholding. So it was, you know, Charlie Hebdo is extreme left. um, And there is a kind of um, interview that ran at length there that, um, that was very supportive of it. And Le Figaro, which is on the right, there was the same kind of long interview that ran very supportive of it and the readership of both publications, very supportive of it. So that's, that seemed to me like something that really wouldn't happen in America where both the wall street journal and the nation would say that an argument about race made sense and their readers would largely agree. It's also so strange that that's happening in France now where there have been paroxysms about not racism, but Islamophobia and nationalism. I mean, the lead piece in our next issue is uh, about the murder of Samuel Petty. Mm-hmm. So is it is it strange for you that your book has been received sort of as if it's outside of that context? I mean, is it is it a part of that um, discourse in your mind or is it something completely different? It's an interesting question. I mean, it's a bit different because I think that even many, not all, but many of the people who would be arguing that France um, needs to change its approach to its Muslim community would not be arguing for um, an increasingly racialized understanding of that group. Or it wouldn't be in the same exact way that American anti-racists argue for a kind of um, something that almost comes back to a reessentialization of the difference between white and non-white. So I think that there is a kind of way that the French discourse proceeds that um, that is on its own terms. And so my book kind of talks about the way that um, we have to figure out how to have you know universal values and to to, to belong to ourselves and each other. Um, in, in that way and not as balkanized groups uh, in a zero-sum struggle for power. And I think that a lot of people here would would say we need to have universal values or values that everybody can participate in regardless of their um, community. It's just that they're arguing about what those values would be. They're not arguing that the community identity should, be, um, should take precedence over the shared um, interaction, if that makes sense to you. It does make sense. Does the does the fact that you are existing in a culture that views these things so differently with such a different framework, but your sort of your mind is elsewhere because you're kind of living in this double life where part half of you is across the ocean. Um, does it give you distance from the sort of the brawls and battles of the American of the American culture? Do you view them differently than you would, do you think, if you were if you were inside it, literally? Well, I had this kind of a conversation with um, a journalist the other day who was, who was um, profiling me for the book. And he said, you know, you left like in 2011 and you're kind of opposed to all of the changes, um, whether it's cancel culture or what we call wokeness or whatever. Um, the kind of religion of anti-racism. You're kind of opposed to those changes, and, and and but you're not a conservative. You're a liberal. In this kind of last moment of Obama's version of liberalism, 
And I, and I said, you know, that's right. He's like, you're kind of like a liberal frozen in amber from America 2011 or something like yeah. that. Uh, and, right. and, and I grew, actually. I think leaving the country, um, I, I stopped developing in the direction that maybe I would have been pressured into had I remained in my corner of Brooklyn. Hmm. Um, not sure if I would have as a counterfactual, but it does seem to me like um, I have stepped outside of that kind of atmosphere um, back home. And so I've been seeing it with a distance and I am living a kind of double life, maybe to my wife's uh, chagrin. She wishes I would get off of the social media portals and be more present in the, in the mm-hmm. locality of our lives. But, uh, but I think it's been, I think it's been helpful. And I think it's just been helpful as a writer to, to branch into other countries and, and um, other um discourses i've been increasingly writing in the uk and germany and in france and i think that maybe that's even a protection mechanism because one of the things i'm so concerned about is how um when you deviate from consensus uh your ability to to provide for yourself your economic security is uh is endangered and that's a very powerful way that consensus is is enforced and i've kind of instinctively been gravitating towards having my having several pots uh, simmering, I guess, at the same time, just so that if one is uh, is spilled, I won't be unable to eat dinner. Right. Do you think that if you were in America, I mean, setting aside the question of several or a single pot, um, do you think that if you were in America, you wouldn't feel the need to be on social media all the time? It's hard to say because, you know, a lot of, I only really got extremely online uh, during the pandemic, I think. So... Oh. Um, I think we all have to have a bit of an asterisk next to um, some of the things that we've uh, gotten into in the past year when, you know, our normal lives have been so, so radically altered and, and, and our socializing, our work and, um, and everything has kind of been um, squished into this, uh, into this, this device, this, this, this laptop or this phone. Um, so I, I got much more active on on Twitter, just because I think that that's the that you know that's what kept me um, in certain conversations. I can't travel back to the states the way that I'm accustomed to, so I think that has something to do with it. But it's not just me. I think I saw a statistic that said twenty you know um, users twenty four percent of users became active daily on Twitter than used to be active daily. So a lot of us have kind of taken to social media to find community in this time of, uh, of quarantine. Okay. But you do think that, it, I mean, I think that the statistic about social media generally is about um, boredom and uh, being stir crazy, but less about, I guess a kind of homesickness, if that's a word you would use to describe yourself. Um because if I, when I say if you were here, I mean, is it a way for you to be in America without being there? Like oh, in- yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair thing to say. And I think the homesickness uh, observation is quite astute. Um, absolutely. And this year, especially the kind of being cleaved off from, from that country, I think that I feel um, like I'm around um, by being active on social media in a way that I don't just from publishing pieces, if that makes sense. 
So when you are in America, when you say America, do you mean Brooklyn? Uh, (laughs) I mean, a few parts of Brooklyn, a couple of places in Manhattan, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, maybe Washington, (laughs) D.C. Okay, just checking. And my parents' home in New Jersey. Right, shout out to your parents. Um, Okay, so it is about being a part of an ecosystem that was very much your home and from which you've been cut off. Yeah, I think that's really fair. I I I, I do I think that I never intended to um, emigrate. I never intended to leave the United States the way some people I know have left. Um, I always thought of myself as kind of being what James Baldwin said. Uh, he was a transatlantic commuter. Commuter, and so I think of myself as doing the virtual commute these days. I see. And it's, I guess it's sort of um, serendipitous that we all got shifted online at the same time that the George Floyd revolution happened. Um, So those two, those, the the radicalization of the conversation and its shift online, I guess it's not, it's not serendipitous. Those two things have to do with each other. Um, But you, you became active in that space when that space tone shifted significantly Um, yeah that's definitely fair to say and you know i think that uh you don't have yeah the two things are inextricably linked you don't have the kind of reaction um and the kind of collective um grieving and, and almost kind of religious anti-racist movement that rises in its wake. I don't think you have that without the pandemic conditions. Mm. Um, I just don't see that. I think that a lot of what happened when you saw people storming into the streets and protesting all summer was also, um, they were sublimating this kind of pent up frustration that they couldn't release in the way that, um, that other groups were, were releasing it when they were just protesting lockdowns. Um, I think that there's something really psychological that happened to us on a collective mass scale that we will be making sense of for a long time to come. And, you know, it's not all bad. I think that, you know, maybe that pent up frustration led people into the street to, to, to protest for change that really had to happen, especially when we're talking about looking at how, um, police in America use, uh, lethal force, uh, often wantonly, often um, in ways that are astonishing from any other uh, developed nation's perspective. Um, you know, it wasn't all bad, but I think that there was a kind of psychological um, development that happened in the culture online that is very, very strange. And I probably, you know, that writerly urge that uh, one of your contributors, Paul Berman, um, explained to me when I was just a student was, you know, the, the, the reason anybody writes anything, whether it's an essay or a tweet or a book, is to say it's not like this, it's like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, sitting inside all day, seeing a kind of collective madness, if you consider yourself, if you consider yourself to be semi-sane, I mean, you can either jump into your signal group like a lot of people do and complain privately, or you can, or you can tweet out some of your complaints publicly. I do both. 
<laughs> do you think that it'll ever because this was the the symptomatic of so many different strange twists um this these paroxysms do you think that it it can be undone or do you think these changes are permanent nothing's permanent i think that it will be undone i think that when you have such a kind of consensus you know you have to ask yourself why do the new yorker harvard nike um google apple you name it why do they all have the same exact line on all of these issues um you know whenever there's that kind of absolute lockstep step consensus you know that the even if we have to wait a generation the next generation will rebel against that um we're probably in for you know as 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 leon says this is a 10 to 15 year struggle probably um there's there's a real battle of ideas happening and and the culture is shifting but nothing is permanent and i actually think that in the long term you can't maintain this level of of crazy i think in the long term i'm pretty optimistic it's just right now in the short term there's quite a lot of damage that's happening because we're correcting very real problems that existed but you know the danger is always that the overcorrection can be can be also bad or even worse also, a lot of the, I mean, this is sort of my cynicism, but I think a lot of the stuff that we're hearing right now is about um, signaling membership to a kind of group that wants to look like it wants to fix those problems and is less interested in actually fixing the problems. And that does a lot of damage. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. But it also it also um, means that the status quo doesn't actually really get that disrupted. It just gets cosmetically um, made up, but it but you know you have to wonder how any kind of radicalism that can be so easily integrated within months and weeks by the fortune 200 how that could actually be in any way challenging and then you see that you know, the moment that you know there is actually a kind of challenge to the status quo whether it's the candidacy of bernie sanders whether it's um you know even like a, a, a bunch of um a bunch of guys sitting at home on reddit um upending what hedge fund managers want to happen in the markets, you see that that gets shut down very fast. Um, so I, I don't think that the kind of, you know, the kind of ideological radicalism that we're seeing um, under the umbrella of wokeness is actually that detrimental to the status quo at all. Well, you're, you're using the term status quo in a negative way, right? You mean it's not changing any of the bad things? Well, it's, it's really not changing the fact that, you know, Harvard isn't letting in any more... Um, lower income students, you know, of any complexion, it isn't changing the fact that America has, you know, doesn't have health care for everybody and that, you know, you can't really get affordable child care for many right, people. But it is changing. What it does change, I mean, I guess it, it changes it by keeping it the same, but what it has effectively done is masked the problems of people who are not in positions where they can articulate what they do need and what they are experiencing because the minority groups that we think we're hearing and paying attention to um, are so photoshopped and so convincingly photoshopped that we sort of feel like we can check the box of um, having listened to those who are hurting amongst us. And that means that those voices are going unheard. And that is, I mean, it, it, it's not a change, but it is, um, it is a powerful force. That's interesting. I mean, what, what do you mean? Are, it makes me think that, you know, we have the absurd kind of contradictions where 
you'll have these videos of like uh, elderly Asian Americans in the Bay Area being violently assaulted in the street, and the it will inconveniently be obvious to the naked eye that the assailants are not white, but there will be a kind of contortion to make the conversation around what we're seeing, which is an elderly non-white person being attacked by a, by a non-white assailant. And we'll say that that falls under the rubric of white supremacy and that we shouldn't uh, actually see what our eyes are saying. We should see a kind of discourse that's easier to, to, to keep talking about. Um, right. And nothing changes. And in fact, things may be getting worse. Is that, I, I think that's what you're, are you putting your finger on something like that? Yes, I think exactly. I think that um, there are a lot of the sort of like the the catchphrases that we hear um, do have corresponding realities that we should be paying attention to. But because the urge is not to pay attention to the realities and figure out how they're how are they complicated and overlapping and metastasizing, it's just to continue participating in this very easy conversation, which is completely uncomplicated. Um, Yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. Um, Absolutely. And that that worries me. I mean, you sounded I just was startled to find you sounding optimistic for a second. <laughs> so Well, I am. I think that you have to be optimistic. Um I don't think that like moral panics can last uh indefinitely, and I think we're very much in something like a moral panic. And I also just don't think that um, you know, that these like these types of um outbursts of uh puritanical fervor whether it's you know prohibition or any of this stuff it it will look ridiculous uh to those coming up after us i I have to believe that and i also just don't believe that it's what is the best of america the best of america isn't a kind of um illiberal authoritarianism whether it's coming from the left or the right the best of america isn't um focusing on you know power dynamics and zero-sum games the best of america is um figuring out how we all um, make this mongrel society uh, vibrant and work. And, and the best of the tradition that I come from is an optimistic tradition, even, even in the face of an enormous amount of pain and suffering. I mean, this is the lesson that I get from James Baldwin when he says that we have, we have to resist all delusions and the racial delusion is, is, is certainly one of them because we owe, um, we owe nothing less than, than, than the impossible to our children. And so, you know, I, I really think that, you know, we're going to absolutely, um, we're going to, I just have to believe we're going to correct this stuff. And, and if, and if we're not, you know, that is why I keep, uh, I guess I keep a visa to work in the European union. Thank you so much for joining us, Thomas. If you enjoyed that conversation, head over to libertiesjournal.com and subscribe in the first issue, which you will still receive upon subscription, you will find Thomas Chatterton Williams's brilliant essay on James Baldwin entitled The Peripheralist.